If you would uh, pray with me, and then we're going to look at that passage together. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. Uh, We thank you for the beautiful day that you've created. Uh, We thank you for this place uh, that we can gather together as your people, that we can open your word, that we can hear directly from you. And so we pray this morning that as we do just that, that you would meet us in this place. We pray that you would be our teacher, that you would be the one that takes the eternal truth of your word and applies it to our hearts in our minds. Uh, We confess that we cannot do this without you. And so we ask that you would illuminate us, that you would take the truth and and just uh, show us clearly what you would have for us. We pray this morning that we would leave here uh, just being corrected uh, if we need correction, but being encouraged and, and just finding your grace in the middle of that and just the way that you love us completely and totally and fully in Jesus. So we thank you. Uh, We thank you for this opportunity. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, How many of you uh, know who uh, Bobby Knight is? Uh, Familiar with the name Bobby Knight? Yeah, I'd say a lot of hands. Yeah. Bobby Knight, if you're not familiar, was a basketball coach uh, at Indiana for a long, long time. And then I believe he coached at Texas Tech for a while after that. Uh, When Bobby Knight retired as a basketball coach, he was the winningest coach in the history of college basketball. He had over 900 wins when he retired. Uh, As it sits today, I looked up this week, he's number three now on the all-time win. A couple guys passed him after he retired, one being one of his former assistant coaches and players that's now the winningest coach. And so you see his influence uh, even in those that would come after him. But Bobby Knight is known as, as one of the best basketball coaches ever. Uh, brilliant mind, understanding the game and how to do it. Uh, he became an announcer for a few years after he retired. And I used to listen to him and the guys that he would announce with and they would talk about and they would do plays and he'd diagram stuff. They would always be in awe of the things that he saw that they didn't. The guy just understood the game in a way a whole lot of people didn't. But you know what Bobby Knight is most famous for? For picking up a chair and throwing it across the court in the middle of a game because he was so angry over the officiating. Uh, It was always his uh, Achilles heel, heel, so to speak. Uh, Later on, he'd be fired from Indiana University because of his temper and the way that he responded to players and administration and reporters at different times. And it was something that he struggled with his whole career. It would also be the end of his second uh, stint as he coached for Texas Tech. Similarly would end in a very similar fashion. And so Bobby Knight, as great as he was, uh, he won over 70% of his games. He won, I think, three national championships, went to the final four or five times. And everybody, you say Bobby Knight, and they think about him throwing the chair across the floor. And, And the truth is, what happens is when we let our anger get the best of us, it's usually not for good things. Uh, it usually ends up leading to uh, regret, regret uh, wounding someone with our words, being frustrated, letting that bubble out, and it causes problems and issues. You see that clearly in somebody like Bobby Knight. I mean, he lost his job over it twice, actually. Uh, it now follows him kind of in his legacy. And so when we start to talk about this idea of anger, I think we could go around the room and talk about different times where we've had regret over maybe losing our temper or or the way maybe we've wounded other people in the way we speak or we've been wounded by someone who's really lost their temper and given rise to that. Uh, it, it certainly can end up wounding relationships, can be detrimental, uh, maybe uh, like in the case of Bobby Knight to your um, legacy and the way people perceive you or, or as a believer that's wanting to follow Jesus in our life. And if we let anger get the best of us, it can wound our testimony in the way people see Christ in us. 
which that's what we're talking about in this section of Ephesians chapter four, that we would grow up into the fullness of what Jesus has for us and what he's created us to be. And so anger can be a big problem if it's left unchecked. In fact, I was reading this week, there's a lot of studies that say if you don't deal with your anger, it can end up affecting your health. It can end up uh, robbing you of sleep and cause anxiety, depression, blood pressure, uh, heart attack, stroke, all sorts of things if it's left unchecked. And so it's an important uh, topic to at least think about and address. And, and what we're going to look at this morning in Ephesians 4 is Paul's going to actually have several things to say about anger. And so if you've been with us, we're just working our way through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, what we call Ephesians. Um, and what he's been doing is he's, he's given us these great, big, huge uh, theological truths. But we get to chapter four and now he's talking practically about how we live this out and what it looks like to do so. And so last week, if you were with us, we were talking about him saying, put off your old self the way you used to live apart from faith in Jesus and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. And what he's going to do here in this last section is he's going to talk about a lot of things to put away and then how to live into who you are in Christ. And one of those things he's going to hit on here is anger. He talks about telling the truth and he talks about the way we deal with money and the way we talk to each other. But several verses here, he comes back to this idea of anger. And because it is so pre prevalent and because we're, we deal with that in our own heart and our own life, and we probably could tell stories of the way that's come to bear, it's an important topic for us to stop and consider this morning. And so we're going to do just that. We're going to look at a few verses here at the end of Ephesians chapter 4. We'll come back to the same section next week, but really this week we're going to focus on what Paul says about anger. And the way I want us to look at it is first just to consider the nature of anger and what he says about it. He's going to say some things, some warnings here, but I want us just to think about the fullness of what the Bible talks about when it talks about this idea of anger. Secondly, we're going to consider why, if we don't deal with it, it can be so destructive. If it's left unchecked, why it becomes so destructive. And then lastly, what does he say here that helps us to deal with it in a God honoring way? And so let's consider first just big idea, big picture the idea or, or kind of the nature of anger. And so look with me in Ephesians chapter four, if you would. We're going to pick up in verse 26. And so Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And when you first read that, the first thing you hear there, it almost sounds like he's positively requiring you to be angry. And he says, be angry. And do not sin. And so you can read that and go, well, wait a second, is that a command of the Bible to be angry? But it's not exactly what he's saying there, even though that's kind of what it sounds like in our translation. Remember, Paul's writing here and he's addressing a lot of things that the church is dealing with. And the way that they used to live and the way they used to walk before they became believers. And he's got a church full of new believers that are dealing with all sorts of things. And a more literal translation of what he says here is more like when anger comes, do not sin. And so it's not that he's positively requiring you to be angry, but he's saying when you feel the emotion, when it comes, don't sin, do not give rise to sin in it. And so what he's saying here is the way that we deal with it and the way that we operate. And so I want us to think about that. There's a lot of warnings in the Bible when it comes to anger. Overwhelmingly, the passages you read about anger in the Bible are warnings. 
And for good reason, like uh, in the book of James, James writes uh, that the man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. That's an important warning that he gives us. And it makes a lot of sense. But but here, when he's talking about anger and be angry, but do not sin, I want us to consider the fullness of what the Bible says. It's not just that anger is always bad or wrong. In fact, he says here, be angry and do not sin. And so the the uh, clear uh, teaching is that anger itself is not necessarily sin, but it can quickly lead to it. And so I want us to think a little bit about what the Bible says. See, the Bible's very nuanced on a whole lot of different subjects. And if we try to boil it down to it just says this, we can miss a lot of what it says. And so when we go through the Bible and we start to think about this idea of anger, uh, anger is not necessarily bad or evil. In fact, the Bible tells us at different times of God being angry. The Bible talks a good bit about God's wrath. Uh, we've tried to scrub that out of the Bible and out of Christianity to some degree today. You'll hear me say this often. Anger is not a bad thing and it's not something we should shy away from. The wrath of God is his holy, righteous anger against all things that are bad, against all things that are destructive and sinful. And if for God to be perfect in every way, he has to be wrathful towards things that are destructive. That's part of his holy, righteous, perfect character. And so we can't just wipe that away and pretend like it doesn't exist. It's actually a good thing. And God's wrath is born out of his love. Right? It's good and it's right to be angry at things that are destructive. But how quickly that can turn into something not helpful. And so there's all these warnings in the Bible about how to deal with anger. And how we should come at it. But I want us just to think of this idea of God's wrath being born out of love for just a second. Because it's really important that we, we get the biblical uh, idea of that. That if God's love is what causes his righteous anger at things that are destructive. And, and I think about that uh, when I think about like protecting my children. It's good for me to be protective and want their best and to care for them. Uh, my friend was telling me the other day uh, at my kid's school that he had just dropped off his son and a guy pulled up to drop off his kid. And then he fishtailed, peeled out in the parking lot of the school and went flying out of the parking lot. And my friend was like, I was so mad. I was running behind him, yelling at him and shaking my fist. And what he started to say is he's like, I was so mad because if some kid stepped out from under from behind a car with that guy flying out, they could have been killed. And he's like, I was so angry. And I said, that's, that's partly, in a very real way, a righteous anger. He was angry because that could cause uh, bodily harm or injury or, or to kill a child in the parking lot. So that's why you don't drive that way in the school parking lot. And so those sorts of emotions that we have that give rise because we care deeply about the things God cares about is not uh, wrong or bad. Uh, maybe the same is true when you see uh, some of the school shootings that have happened recently. Sadly, we've seen that a lot in our country recently. And you see those and you watch with horror of someone going into a school and beginning to shoot children. And that can give rise to anger. Right. Because you care about those children and you think about the evil that perpetrated that. 
because of the things that God has put us in his image that we care about, that we care about our children and those things there and that act of of brutality and evil. And it makes you angry. And that's a righteous anger to be angry at the things that God are angry about. And so we don't want to just kind of wipe that away and say anger is always bad or not, because he says here, be angry and do not sin. Or as anger comes, don't let it give rise to sin. And so we want to be careful to to positively uh, say the things that the Bible says. And so God has this holy, righteous anger against all things that are wrong, that are sinful. When it goes against God's good creation and his intent for it, for him to be perfect, he needs to have that righteous anger against those things. We see this perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh comes. And if you read through the Gospels, what you will get is there's multiple times where it says that Jesus was angry. You see it uh, as he comes in to the temple and he finds money changers in the temple. And they're making money off of selling sacrifices. But not only are they making money off of selling sacrifices, they're impeding the worship of those that are trying to come and worship at the temple. And it says Jesus is angry. And he began to drive them out. Now, there's another time what attributes anger to Jesus. When the religious leaders of the day and the hardness of heart care more about people keeping rules than loving the person right in front of them. As Jesus is healing a man on the Sabbath. And it says he was angry. Or if you read as Jesus goes to Lazarus's tomb. And his dear friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus shows up two days after he's died. And he stands before his tomb. It says if you look closely at the words that are used there. That he was seething with anger. As he stands there and he sees the effect of sin in the world. And death of his friend. And he sees it. Jesus was angry. And you see a holy, righteous anger at those things of sin and their consequences in the world. Despite that, despite what we see of Jesus and what it tells us of God, the Bible is full of warnings about the destructiveness of sin in our lives because we are sinful, broken people. And so it's important that we keep that in its proper balance. And so if you were with us last week, we were talking about the way Paul's telling us to not live as we used to live. Right. In verse 22, if you look back, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. It's harmful and it brings ruin when you go back and you think the way that you used to think. And we've been saying over and over that that thinking is really putting yourself at the center of all things instead of seeing God at the center of all things. And he says, put that off and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And so he's telling us to do that. And then he gets to this last section and he says, so be angry and do not sin. Don't let your deceitful desires begin to give rise to where this anger that is over good and righteous things then becomes sinful. And it's very easy for us to do that. We talked about this last week, how the deceitfulness of our hearts can take things and quickly distort them and make them into something that God didn't intend for them to be. And so... Anger that gives rise out of a a good reason. 
Maybe you have uh, a teenage child in your house that begins to drive. It's a scary thing, isn't it? I hear a lot of uh, anger boiling up already, and I didn't even get to the... uh. Right, but let's say you have a teenager who's driving, and you get a call that they got a, a DUI. Right? Anger comes up for uh, recklessness. It's illegal. It could cause harm and damage to other people. It could kill someone, not only themselves. And as a parent, there's be a lot of things that would come to the surface that maybe surface in anger over a righteous anger of this is wrong and it's not good. But how quickly the deceitful desires of our hearts can then turn into something that brings harm and ruin. And it goes from being angry and do not sin to being angry and then sinning. I want you to think about how those deceitful desires come up. Yes, it would be good and right to say, no, you have to keep the law and you need to be responsible and you need to do those things. And be angry at the thought of uh, someone could be killed by our irresponsibility. But then how quickly that can become, I'm angry because it reflects poorly on me. The deceitful desires of my anger. I'm really mad because it makes me look like a bad parent. I've placed myself at the center instead of where God should be. And then quickly those deceitful desires start to come in. Or I'm angry because I want to control these things and you're not doing what I said and now I'm not in control anymore. The deceitful desires out of a healthy, righteous anger now quickly gets out of control into areas that are not good. And my pride is at the root of that. And how quickly that's the case with our anger. It can be very subtle. It can be very subtle because we care about our children. But then how quickly it can turn into something else that places me at the center. And we can do that in all different sorts of ways. I think about different times when I get frustrated and anger starts to boil up. One of those is if I feel like uh, I've studied God's word and I have a conviction that this is what it says. And it's clearly here and this is what it says. And then somebody kind of just blows it off like, yeah, I don't think so. And I'm not talking about someone who's not a believer. I'm saying someone who's holding to God's word and they say, I believe it. And that's what it says. And that's right. And then they just blow it off. It can easily go. I can can feel it start to bubble up in me. Part of that. Hopefully is because I I want God's word to be true for us to obey it. A good thing. But if I'm really honest and I really start to think about it and I follow the root of anger to what is it that's making me angry, part of it's probably my pride. It's what it says. And I showed you what it says and it's right there. Why are you not believing me? I place myself right in the middle and the center of it and suddenly it's a deceitful desire that's bringing harm and ruin and I've made it about me and not about God. How subtle that is. We let our pride get in the way and it starts to get into those things. Maybe a a, a little lighter, but I think just as true. How many of you have ever gotten angry at a football game? (laughs) Right? You're watching your team and they're ahead and then two really bad calls. 
And all of a sudden, the other team's ahead, and then you're really mad? Have you ever had that? You're mad because it was the wrong call, and it's an injustice. And I'd say, and I'm not joking, part of that is a righteous anger. If you see it was wrong, and they got it wrong, and the other team benefited, you're like, wait a second, that's not fair. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm now angry that it's not right. But I think what happens is if we we follow the root of that, I'm angry because it was a bad call. But then I'm angry because my team's going to lose and I want to win. And then I'm angry because that jerk at work is going to make fun of me tomorrow because his team won. And I want to stick it to him. Right. And suddenly all those things are mixed in. And suddenly the deceitful desires and my anger is giving rise to these things. And it's gone from being angry for possibly a good reason. It was wrong. It was injustice. To now all these other things get involved. Or part of it is we get our identity from how good our team is. It's pretty ridiculous if you think about it. When people say, we beat you. I'm like, who are you talking about? I wasn't there. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> Sitting on my couch just like you were. You didn't beat me. But we make our identity be part of those things. And then anger gives rise. And it's those deceitful desires that start to get in there. And we place ourselves right in the middle of it. But look at what he says here. How that happens. Why it's so destructive. Verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. And then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity For the devil. Part of that, don't let the sun go down on your anger. We can be very literal and say, don't go to bed angry. I tell you, that's a good practice. To take those things before the Lord, before you go to bed. I don't think literally he's saying you can never go to bed if you're angry. But I think that's a good practice to begin to, to think through why am I feeling this anger and not letting it stew. But that's what he's really talking about. Is letting it turn over in your mind, nurturing that, not dealing with it, letting it continue to boil under the surface, not dealing with it. You're giving an opportunity for the devil. Paul's done this a couple times in Ephesians and he'll come back to it real clearly in chapter six. But there is a spiritual warfare going on that's more than just your emotions. And he's saying that that is a point of attack when you are angry and you're not dealing with it and you're letting it simmer under the surface. That's the place to attack. And so what he's talking about here is when we let those things continue to grow, we harbor our anger. Or we continue to leave it undealt with. And you know what happens when we do? We get more incensed. We get more angry. And we turn it over in our mind and it gets more and more and it grows. And it begins to cause all sorts of issues when we do that. Instead of constructively dealing with it, we go against what God tells us and we continue to harbor it. Have you ever done that? What does the Bible say when you have a problem with someone? You go to that person and you talk to them. What do we often do? You feel wronged. You're now angry. What happens? You go and you tell your friend, you're not going to believe what so-and-so did. Made me really angry. And you know what happens a lot of times? They pat you on the back and they go, you're right. You should be angry. That's terrible. And then you go, yeah. And then you go home and then you think about it some more. 
And then you tell somebody else and they go, oh, that's awful. Right. And then you tell it again. And by the third time, you've added some new details that maybe didn't even happen. And now you're really angry. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to go talk to him. And the problem is we go straight and we haven't done anything the way God tells us to do. We're operating in our old self. Right. The Bible says you you bring those things before the Lord, you seek godly counsel, you go directly to the person and you talk to him. And so what would be a better way to maybe get into that is maybe stepping back from that. Taking it before the Lord, asking him to speak into that. A great prayer when you're struggling with that, you lay down at night and your anger is boiling up. Something that's really bothering you. Pray Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What would happen with our anger if that's the way we were dealing with it? But oftentimes we harbor it and we kind of water it and we let it stew. It's kind of like having uh, weeds in your yard. I said that's a very poignant thing to me right now we just moved into a new house and i go out and spray all the weeds and then i don't do it for one day and then the rains and now they're everywhere right it's the same thing when you leave it undealt with it starts to get into everything and i think that's what he's talking about there in verse 26 and 27 and when we do that our emotions get ramped up and it gets worse and so that being angry and do not sin we've crossed over very quickly to being angry going straight to sin And then we're not operating in the ways God tells us to operate. And what happens is if you read through this little section, you get to living like verse 31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I think that's a pretty good summary of what happens when we don't do what he says in verse 26. When we do let the sun go down on our anger and then we let it happen again and again and we harbor it and we keep going, what ends up happening is we look like the person he's talking about in verse 31. If you're unsure of that list that he gives there in verse 31, bitterness, put away all bitterness. That means sour speech with a general negative outlook. Struggling all the time to be not be negative about everything. And everything that you say that comes out of your mouth is just generally negative always. Or you go down the list, all bitterness and wrath. The wrath he's talking about here is not godly in the way that God's wrath is, but it's our wrath in the sense of an impassioned rage. Or you talk about anger and the word he uses there is a sullen hostility. You know somebody like that? It's like no matter what you say, they're ready to fight with you. It's just always there. Right? You say the sky is blue and they're like, well, technically it's not blue. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding. Right? That sullen, hot, it's always there. Or slander is continuously speaking ill of others. That you're always going around just anytime somebody comes up, you have a negative word to say. 
Our malice is, is ill will towards others, just generally speaking. It kind of sums up all of those. And I think what you get here when Paul's saying, put away all those things, that if you harbor your anger and you water it and you keep going, and you let the sun go down on your anger, you suddenly look like that person in verse 31. It's what marks your life in a whole lot of different ways. And then when you deal with people and when you talk with them, instead of dealing with them in the way that God has called you to in this new self of who you are in Jesus and your identity of him, you're you're walking in the old self. And it looks like verse twenty nine. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those to hear that hear. And if you're generally angry, if you're generally bitter and you've always got a negative thing to say, how much of what you're speaking is building up the people around you that it's just grace to their ears? And so what he says here and what he tells us in this whole section that we're looking at is put off the old self. That's not who you are in Jesus. Put on the new self and begin to be transformed, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and live out what it looks like to be Christ being formed in you. And it's not any of those things. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with anger in a healthy way where we do not sin? How do we not get into that verse 31 where that's what we look like or verse 29 where everything we say is tearing people down? And I think he summarizes it really well in one verse, and it's verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Tenderhearted means to be compassionate towards others, compassionate care for those around you. It's what Jesus is for us. The way he pursues us and the way he loves us. Tender-hearted. It's the opposite of being hard-hearted, of being sullen and being negative and always having an ugly word to say for others. It's giving people the benefit of the doubt, seeking reconciliation, going directly to the person, but not with an agenda to fight with them to actually seek reconciliation. And he says that that you should be seeking that. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And it's recognizing that all that negative things that we see, all the things that we deal with and we struggle with are the result of sin in the world. Whether globally or locally or personally, sin has gotten into everything. And what we desperately need is the grace of God in our lives. And when we start to see that, it it melts our heart. It gives us a tender heart towards others to love them in the way that Jesus has loved us. Let me just remind you what Paul says in chapter 2. In verse 3, he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you hear what he says? That apart from God's grace in your life and coming to a saving relationship with Jesus, the wrath of God rests on you for good reason. God's holy, righteous anger against you because you're ignoring him and his world and you're rebelling against them. And he says, that's right. 
And that's who you were apart from Jesus. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He says you deserve wrath. But God is full of mercy and he pursues you and he loves you. Paul says almost the exact same thing in Titus three. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice. Right? Same word he uses there. Malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Angry at everybody around us. Generally sullen, ready to fight, ready to argue over everything. And he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is the only reason that we're not that is because of God's grace in our life. And so he turns here and he says, this is the way that you deal with these things. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You recognize that you're sinful and that you're broken and that you deserve God's wrath and you blow it a lot. But God still loves you and pursues you and cares for you. And he's being formed in you and you are now to live the same way. And that's impossible in your own doing. If you're going to operate in your old self apart from Christ, you will never be able to do that. It is only as Christ is formed in you and what he's done for you becomes more real to you that you can ever begin to do that. And he calls us to live that way. And so I just want to ask this question. I want you to think about this before we end this morning. Can you be verse 31? Bitter, angry, slanderous, stewing in your anger, frustrated, generally hostile to those around you and tender hearted at the same time. I don't think so. I don't think it works like that. And so how do we be tender hearted? How do we put off anger and bitterness? Slander and seek reconciliation and be tender hearted. How do we deal with that? And so I just asked this question this morning. Is there a low level of simmer in your heart for somebody else? Is, is that there? As I say that, do you go, yeah. And if that's true and you believe God's word and what he says here, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to let it simmer and continue to be there and grow into bitterness and continue to talk about the person? Or are you going to do what God's called us to do? And the only way that you can do that is by understanding what Jesus has done for you. That you were by nature a child of wrath, but God being rich in mercy has caused you to become alive in Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. 
And it's then and only then when you recognize the grace of God in your life that you can extend it to someone else. But here's the problem. He may say, yes, I do have that. It is on the back burner. It's still there and I still feel it. And the problem is you might go, but I'm like 99% right. And the truth is you might be. I don't say that as a joke. You might be right. You may have been really wronged and you have good reason to be angry. My question is, is there anything that God's grace can't conquer? No. And so what do you do? Do you live in bitterness and you let that continue to be harbored? Or do you humble yourself and you repent and you seek God's reconciliation in the heart of that, that he would be glorified in those relationships? I think you know the answer. The hard part is you're like, dang it. Right? Now I got to do something about it. I want to honor God in my life. We want to put off the old self and be renewed in the spirit of our mind and live into the new self of what we've been created to be in Jesus. And so it might be humbling yourself and prayerfully going and seeking the person that you have that you're harboring that for. And you might be met with arrogance. You might be met with, yeah, you're messed up. I don't care what you say. What did Jesus do? They spit on him. They mocked him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Oh, that's hard. In fact, that's impossible if it's not in the power of Christ being formed in you and what he's done for you. But the truth is God will be glorified in that. And it takes seeing your identity in Jesus. God is in control and he knows and he's right in those things. And I'm going to trust him in that. And I want him to be glorified in my life because of what Jesus has done for me. And I know that's not an easy thing. But hopefully what it does is it pushes you towards your need for God's grace that much more in your life. And it makes Jesus that much more real that he's big enough to do that. That would be our heart as we seek that with others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glorious good news of who you are and what you've done for us. I pray that we would see it afresh today. That you've forgiven us despite us deserving wrath, despite us being sinful, broken people that have run from you, that you pursue us and you forgive us and you love us. And so we thank you for that. I pray that you would show us today what it looks like to live in our identity of who we are in you, that you would continue to form that in us, that we would rely wholly on your grace as you make us new. But Lord, we want to be obedient to the things that you've called us to do recognizing that we're not saved by our works, but it's what you've done for us. But we do want to love you and show obedience and all those things. Uh, We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.